Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. It is with great pleasure that I am able to announce that Simon and Schuster Publishing Company has given permission for this book to be read out loud and shared on Stories Come to Life until June 30th, 2024. But of course, the episodes that fall under that special permission will all be taken down on that date, so listen now while they're available. Nancy discovered that robbers have ransacked the Topham bungalow and packed all of the household goods into a moving van. Could the old Crowley clock be inside? As Nancy pursues the thieves and informs the police of the robbery, she wants to investigate the van and find the clock before all the stolen goods are confiscated by the police. But what if Nancy's investigations are discovered? Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Nancy Drew, The Secret of the Old Clock Chapter 17 Jeff Tucker's Story There was another long wait, and then, to her relief, Nancy Drew heard a key turn in the lock, and then a bolt shot back. Quickly, she pushed the closet door open and stepped out into the light. She stood face to face with Jeff Tucker, the old man employed by the Tophams to take care of the property. The robbers had led her to believe that they had harmed the old fellow, and Nancy was glad to see him well and happy, albeit a little too happy for Jeff Tucker plainly had had a bit too much to drink. Jeff still knew very well what was going on about him, but a certain alcoholic glitter in his eyes and his somewhat unsteady stance informed Nancy that he was not just as sober as the proverbial judge. She suspected that while he had been absent on his convivial celebration, the robbers had made off with the Topham furniture, for even in his condition, Jeff seemed to realize that something was amiss. He stared at Nancy, then his eyes roved about the topsy-turvy room. Say, can you tell me where all the furniture is at? Nancy smiled in spite of herself at the old caretaker's bewilderment. For try as he might, he evidently could not rationalize the situation. The most definite information I can give you, she said, is that some robbers carted it away. If you had been here attending to your duty, it would never have happened. That's right, that's right, blame me. I'm not supposed to be any standing army. I'm just a plain old man with a wife and grandchildren dependent on me. I don't have anything to do with those machine gun boys. Jeff paused and passed his hand over his forehead, as if he were trying to wipe away the alcoholic cobwebs that were accumulating about his perceptive faculties. Then suddenly he pointed a bony finger at Nancy and demanded, How come you're here? 
that's a fine question for you to ask, replied Nancy indulgently. But I don't mind telling you. I arrived just as the robbers were hauling off the last of the furniture. They locked me in the closet. I must have been there for hours. You were in the closet all that time? Jeff's voice suddenly took on a pathetic tone. You poor girl. Suppose you'd starved to death in there, or if the house had burned down, or you were scared into fits, or— There now, Mr. Tucker, don't take on about what might have happened to me. I'm all right. Nancy determined to try persuasion on the old fellow in order to find out what had happened to him. Tell me where you were last night, she suggested gently. Well, miss, it was this way. I was out in the yard doing some chores and thinking how I wished I was someplace that I wasn't. Just any place. I didn't mind where. I was just all fed up with being a caretaker and taking care of all this stuff from morning till night. It ain't such an exciting life, miss, and even though I've sowed all my wild oats, I still sow a little rye now and then. Yes, Mr. Tucker, I can smell that on your breath right now. Jeff Tucker wiped the back of his hand over his mouth, in an apparent effort to keep his rye-laden breath from being propagated into the atmosphere. You can't blame me, he protested. He gave it to me. Who is this he? Why, that man who drove up in the big sedan. He saw me out here, and he knows how useless and lonesome I felt. So he says, Jeff, hop in. I know a place. So in I hopped. Of course I locked up the house and the barn and saw that everything was safe. Safe? From the looks of this room, one could hardly call it that. Oh, well, it looked safe and I felt safe too, and then we whizzed off in that big car. Then this man, he says, Jeff, how about a little drink? And I says, I don't mind seeing it's you. Then I had one and some more too, because... After a while, I didn't feel like I was riding in an automobile at all. I thought I was being carried off to heaven. Well, that was a fine thing to do, I must say, Nancy commented. Then what happened? Well, I came to. I saw I wasn't in heaven, but I was in a hotel. And I was in bed, and I was feeling sick and discouraged. Well, I got my clothes on, and I saw my keys to the house have been pilfered. Then I tried to recollect what came to pass, and I got suspicious. And I said to myself, Jeff, how come that man was so friendly? Why did he give you a drink? And why don't you have any keys? You best bestir yourself, I said to myself, and here I is. Oh, yes, you're here, all right, Nancy returned severely, and a fine mess you've made of it, too. What do you think Mrs. Topham will say when she learns? Jeff Tucker rolled his eyes. Oh, my, what will she say? I reckon she'll discharge me. It would be only what you deserve, Jeff Tucker. You were unfaithful to your trust. What do you mean? I don't trust anybody anymore, especially no footloose boys traveling around in sedans. You don't understand. I mean, you didn't treat Mrs. Topham right in going off. I reckon you're right. Old Jeff Tucker done gone and made a fool of himself. I realize that whatever I get, I got coming. A tear rolled down the old man's furrowed cheek, and he wiped it away with his handkerchief. 
There now, Mr. Tucker, Nancy said consolingly. Let's forget about what's been done and think about what we can do to straighten things out. I'll try to help you. We must report the robbery to the police right away. Is there a telephone in the house? No, we don't have any telephone here. Then we shall have to go to town as quickly as we can in my car. Do you suppose that you would recognize the man who enticed you away? Say, would I remember him? I'd recognize that man in a bootlegger's convention. He was tall and slick-looking, with a kind of gimme look in his eye. Yes, I sure would know him. Before leading the way to her roadster, Nancy thought of the old Crowley clock again, and all that it might mean in the solving of the mystery of the will. Old Jeff Tucker, as caretaker, would surely know whether or not it was in the bungalow before the robbery. Tell me something, Mr. Tucker, she said. Was there an old clock in the house? A tall, square-faced mantel clock? Yes, but all I ever done to it was dust it. I never wound it up to see if it would run. I have a watch of my own. Jeff Tucker punctuated his remarks by taking a large, silver, open-faced watch from his pocket and holding it to his ear. Oh, it's run down, too. I reckon I was in that hotel when I should have been tending to this watch. Never mind the watch, Jeff. You're sure there was a clock in the house, then? Oh, I'm sure of that, miss. I recollect that clock just as plain as day. I wouldn't forget that clock. No, never. Nancy now felt almost certain that this was the clock which contained the notebook, telling of what disposal had been made of the Crowley will, and that it had been stolen by the robbers. She must recover the clock, and there was only one way. The thieves must be apprehended, and the stolen goods returned. With this thought in her mind, she rushed out toward her roadster, calling to Jeff Tucker to follow. I'm coming, miss, Jeff called. Just a minute. He half hobbled off behind the house out of Nancy's sight, while she sat waiting impatiently in her roadster. She started the engine and warmed it up. But still, Mr. Tucker failed to return. She called to him, but there was no response. Finally, she could stand the suspense no longer. Jumping to the ground, she set off to find out what had become of the old scamp. She found Jeff Tucker, leisurely performing an elaborate facial ablution at the cistern pump. He would pump his hands full of water and then, with a great spluttering noise, dash it against his face. For goodness sakes, Mr. Tucker, said Nancy, provoked as she came upon him. Don't you realize I've been waiting for you? Those robbers will probably be in the next state before we even succeed in notifying the police. Oh, excuse me, miss, but I'm taking a little wash. I see you are, but can't that wait? But this wash is important. I just want to get good and sober before I go into the police station. And this cold water is good for what ails me. Coax, wheedle, or threaten. Nancy was unable to hurry Jeff Tucker a minute, but at last he had finished, and Nancy, with a sigh of relief, loaded him into the waiting roadster. As she stepped upon the accelerator, and the car moved slowly out onto the highway, she wondered where the old Crowley clock was now, 
and whether she would ever be able to recover it from the thieves. Chapter 18 Notifying the Police It was probably fortunate for Nancy Drew that the traffic police were not patrolling the road, for as she opened the throttle wider and wider, her roadster responded with a surge of power that sent the car along at breathtaking speed. This old bus sure can step, observed Jeff Tucker. Suppose it turns turtle. Don't worry, Jeff, it won't. I know this roadster. Nancy Drew did know the limit to which she dared go. She guided the car skillfully, and in a short time, they were nearing the outskirts of Milbourne, the nearest town to the Topham bungalow. Better slow down, miss, Jeff Tucker cautioned. The marshal of this town is mighty persnickety about how folks acts. He's run me in more than once. For speeding? No, just for enjoying myself. Then I suppose you can tell me where the jail is. Indeed I can, miss. I sure can. Fact is, this is my favorite jail. You go right down Central Avenue to Maple Street and turn to the left, and there you are. The roadster stopped in front of the building with a lurch, and Nancy stepped out briskly, with Jeff Tucker following at a more leisurely gait. I must see an officer, Nancy announced as she entered the office. I want to report a robbery. A buzzer rang, and soon a marshal, followed by several men, entered. Nancy quickly told them all she knew about the Topham robbery, and to corroborate what she had said, she called Mr. Tucker for his version. She speaks the truth, testified Jeff, except she doesn't make it strong enough. First thing they did was kidnap me, so I wouldn't be around to raise a ruckus. Then they gave me some kind of a sleeping powder and parked me in a hotel. But I came to and I went back and then I found this girl cooped up in the closet just like she told you. And they wrecked Miss Topham's house and stole all the furniture. The marshal and his men listened attentively and plied Nancy with questions to clear up certain points. Have you any idea which road they took? the marshal asked her. Yes, sir. I examined the tire tracks where the thieves had backed a car up to the house and noticed the pattern they made on the turf. When we passed the road crossing a few miles out of town, I saw the same tracks just off to the side of the road where they had slipped off in turning their truck northward. Can you lead the way? Yes, I'll do everything in my power to help. The marshal terminated the interview by giving curt orders to his deputies. Get your automobile started, he directed Nancy. We'll follow in the police car. Hurry, Nancy begged as she turned toward the door. Those men have nearly an hour's start of us now. Hastily, she ran to the street and sprang into her roadster. Starting the motor, she waited impatiently for the marshal and his men to appear. After a seemingly interminable wait, they came out, buckling on holsters. They piled into the police car, which stood at the curb, and the marshal took the wheel. After several unsuccessful attempts, he started the motor. Jeff Tucker, who had followed the men from the office, would have inflicted his person on the already overburdened car, but as he attempted to gain the running board, he was forced gently but firmly back upon the sidewalk. Follow me, Nancy cried to the marshal. Shifting gears, 
She started off down the road. At the corner, she looked back to see that the police car was following and caught a glimpse of Jeff Tucker, who stood gazing mournfully after the departing automobiles. At the edge of town, Nancy selected the road, which she felt certain the robbers had taken. Her high-powered roadster was built for speed, and several times she was forced to slow down in order that the marshal and his men might keep her in sight. Nancy had gone perhaps eight or nine miles when unexpectedly she came to a fork in the road. Uncertain which branch off to take, she brought the roadster to a halt. The police car pulled up alongside. What's the matter now? the marshal called out. I don't know which way to go. The marshal and his deputies sprang from their automobile and began to examine the tracks in the road. But if a moving van had passed that way, the tire marks had been obliterated by other vehicles. There was no clue to indicate which route the robbers had selected. They must have taken the right-hand fork, the marshal hazarded. Nancy shook her head doubtfully. Doesn't the left-hand road lead to Garwin? The marshal nodded. Then it strikes me the robbers would have taken that road. It seems reasonable that they would head for a large city where they could dispose of the stolen goods. Maybe you're right, the marshal admitted reluctantly. I'll tell you what we'll do, Nancy proposed, as she had an inspiration. You take the right-hand road and I'll head for Garwin. And if you should overtake those rascals, what would you do? the marshal demanded in some amusement. You couldn't expect to stop them single-handed. I wouldn't try. I'd raise back and give the alarm. Hurry. Every minute that we delay just gives them that greater advantage. Without waiting until the marshal had returned to his automobile, Nancy drew back her car and headed down the left-hand road. The highway was smooth, and as there was a clear stretch ahead, she drove rapidly. She realized that already the robbers had a big start, and if they had reached Garwin, she could not hope to overtake them. I'm sure I'm on the right trail, she told herself. That other road doesn't lead anywhere in particular. After she had traveled several miles, Nancy became less confident. Although she had passed a number of side roads, she had kept to the main highway and she realized it would have been easy for the moving van to elude pursuit by taking one of the branches. Still, the robbers can't know that they're being followed, she reasoned. It's likely they'll be off their guard. Fifteen minutes passed, and Nancy began to fear that after all she had selected the wrong road at the fork. Presently, she noticed a man with a team of horses approaching. She determined to question him. Have you seen a large moving van on this road? She called out as she stopped the roadster alongside the wagon. Truck passed me about twenty minutes ago, the farmer told her. The big road hog tried to push me into a ditch. Highly elated at the information, Nancy thanked the farmer and drove on. At the rate I'm going, I should overtake the robbers in a few minutes, she thought. Oh, if I could only get my hands on the Crowley clock before the police confiscate the stolen goods. Ten minutes passed, and then another ten. As Nancy gazed anxiously down the road, she could see no sign of the moving van. I've missed them somewhere, she decided in disappointment. 
there's nothing to do but go back. Nancy Drew recalled the fact that she had passed a roadhouse less than a mile back, and it occurred to her that possibly the robbers had stopped there. I'll go back there and make inquiries, she thought. I haven't gone by a single crossroad since I talked with that farmer. So if the robbers didn't stop at the roadhouse, I can't imagine what became of them. If they were on this road, I'm certain I would have passed them by this time. Dusk was approaching, and Nancy Drew knew that if she were ever to find the robbers, it must be within the next hour. Skillfully, she turned the roadster around in the road. A few minutes of fast driving brought her within sight of the roadhouse. The place was of disreputable appearance, and Nancy suspected that it might be a bad resort to visit. It stood back from the road a short distance, and was half hidden by tall trees. The building was large and rambling, but rather old and sadly in need of paint. A sign on the gate read, The Black Horse. Beyond the inn, Nancy caught a glimpse of a garage and a large stable. She did not enter the private driveway which led to the inn, but stopped her car at the side of the road. Before starting to walk toward the roadhouse, she hesitated. I don't like to go in there, but there's no other way, she decided. She walked briskly up the path, glancing about in all directions for a sign of a moving van. The door of the garage was closed, as was the door of the barn, and the thought occurred to her that perhaps the robbers had parked their van inside one of the buildings. As she drew near the inn, Nancy approached cautiously. As she stepped upon the veranda, coarse laughter reached her ears. She tiptoed to a window and peered inside. What she saw caused her to start in surprise. In a dingy, dimly lighted room, three men were seated about a table, obviously engaged in a drinking orgy. They were the three men who had robbed the Topham Bungalow. Chapter 19 A Risky Undertaking I must notify the marshal at once, Nancy Drew told herself as she recognized the three robbers. Turning away from the window, she crept noiselessly from the porch, and as soon as she was at a safe distance from the inn, broke into a run. As she stepped into her roadster, a sudden thought occurred to her. Those robbers must have parked their van in the garage back of the inn. If only I could get my hands on the clock before I notify the police. Once the marshal takes charge of the stolen goods, I'll have no opportunity. Motivated by the impulse, Nancy drove on down the road a short distance, and rounding a bend, came up on another side road, which led into the woods directly behind the inn. Stopping the roadster where it would be hidden by the trees, she got out and hurried through the timber. Before leaving the car, she had secured her flashlight, for already it was growing dark. Cautiously, she approached the inn from the rear. Reaching the garage, she found the doors closed, but investigation disclosed that they had not been locked. She opened one of the doors and looked inside. 
There was no sign of a truck, only a battered old Ford car. They must have parked the van in the barn, she decided. As she opened the stable door, it squeaked in an alarming fashion. Anxiously, she glanced toward the inn, but so far as she could tell, her actions were unobserved. There was no one in sight. Flinging the door wide, the girl peered hopefully into the dark interior. A low cry escaped from her lips. There in front of her stood the moving van. Oh, what a piece of luck, she exclaimed, as she viewed the truck which the robbers had left in the barn. Now, if I can only find the clock. With a last cautious glance in the direction of the roadhouse, she hastily closed the barn door, lest it swing in the wind and attract attention. With the doors shut, the interior of the barn was dark. As Nancy switched on her automobile flashlight and played it over the moving van, she was disappointed to note that it was a covered one. The rear doors were closed. Nevertheless, although she could not see inside, she was certain the truck contained the goods, stolen only a few hours before from the Topham bungalow. Securing a firm grip on the door handle, she gave it a quick turn. To her surprise, the door did not open. With an exclamation of disappointment, Nancy turned her flashlight on it, and for the first time, noticed the keyhole. The robbers had locked the van. Oh, dear, now what shall I do, she questioned frantically. I'll never be able to break the lock. Desperately, she glanced about. She dared not remain many minutes in the barn, lest the robbers return and find her there. Yet she could not admit defeat. Perhaps the keys were left in the ignition switch, she thought hopefully. She rushed to the front of the van and clambered into the driver's seat. An examination of the dashboard did not reveal the keys hanging from the ignition switch. The robbers must have taken the keys with them, she told herself. Nancy was discouraged. She was on the point of admitting defeat when a thought came to her. Among her acquaintances, there were a number of persons who, upon occasion, hid their automobile keys under the front seat. It was barely possible that the robbers had done likewise. Nancy hastily pulled up the leather seat and looked underneath. A ray of her flashlight illuminated a small object in one corner. Eagerly, she snatched it up and saw that it was a key ring. Luck was with me once, she murmured as she ran back to the rear of the van. After trying several of the keys, she at last found one which would fit the lock. Turning it, she jerked open the door. As she flashed her light about the inside of the truck, she saw that she had made no mistake. The van contained the stolen goods, and it was loaded nearly to the top. What shall I do if the clock is on the bottom? Nancy groaned as another problem occurred to her. I'll never find it. Dexterously, she swung herself up on the load. She flashed the light about on chairs, tables, rugs, and boxes. There was no sign of the Crowley clock. Then the beam rested for a moment 
upon an object in a far corner, and with a low cry of delight, Nancy saw that her search had been rewarded. Protected by a blanket, an old-fashioned mantel clock rested on top of a center table in the very front of the van. She scrambled laboriously over odd pieces of furniture as she tried to reach the clock. Her dress caught on something sharp and it tore, but Nancy did not heed it. She snatched at the blanket and swept the clock toward her. One glance at the timepiece assured her that it fit the description Abigail Rowan had given her. It had a square face, and the top was ornamented with a crescent. Nancy was almost certain that it was the Crowley clock, but as she stood staring at it, her keen ears detected the sound of voices outside the barn. The robbers were coming back. I'm lost, flashed through her mind, clutching the blanket and the clock tightly in her arms. Nancy Drew partly crawled and partly fell over objects as she struggled to get out of the truck before it was too late. She was afraid to think what would happen to her if the robbers discovered her in the van. Reaching the door, she leapt lightly to the floor. She could now hear heavy footsteps coming closer and closer. Nancy slammed the truck doors shut and searched wildly for the keys. Oh, what did I do with them, she thought frantically. She saw that they had fallen from the door to the floor and snatched them up. Hurriedly inserting the right key in the lock, she secured the doors. The deed was not accomplished a minute too soon. As Nancy wheeled about, she distinctly heard the murmur of angry voices outside. The robbers were quarreling among themselves, and already someone was working at the fastening of the barn door. Escape was cut off. Nancy felt that she was cornered. Oh, what shall I do? she thought in despair. Chapter 20. What Nancy Found While Nancy Drew hesitated, uncertain which way to turn, her mind worked more clearly than ever before. She realized instantly that she could not hope to run to the front of the car and place the keys under the seat where she had found them. Instead of attempting the impossible, she flung them upon the floor. Then, Glancing frantically about for a hiding place, she saw an empty manger. Running to it, she scrambled inside and dropped the blanket over her head, just as one of the barn doors swung open. Three men came in, closing the door after them, and as Nancy had suspected, they were the robbers. Evidently they had been drinking, for they were quarreling among themselves over the division of spoils. Ah, oh, shut up, the leader growled. Get in and let's be getting out of here before we have the cops down on our heads. Nancy heard him rummaging under the seat of the car. Say, what did you do with them keys? He demanded harshly of one of his men. What do you suppose? Came the unpleasant response. I put them under the seat. Then come and find them. Don't be all day about it either. All right, get out of the way and give me a chance. As the second robber went to the truck and began a careful search for the keys, Nancy Drew crouched fearfully in her hiding place. I don't see what could have happened to them keys, the robber complained after an unsuccessful search. 
I put him right under the seat. Say if you've lost him. The leader did not finish the threat, for at that moment the third robber stooped over and picked up something at his feet. Here they are on the floor. You must have put him in your pocket and dropped him out. I didn't, the other retorted. I never had them keys in my pocket. The robbers were in a quarrelsome mood and would have engaged in a battle then and there had not the leader interposed. Say, cut out the comedy. We ain't got no time for a fight unless we want to land behind the bars. And if we do, it'll be your fault. You left that girl to starve. Shut up, the leader snarled. He rattled the rear door of the van and found it locked. There's no harm done this time. No one has meddled with this truck. Now get in before I give you a swift kick. After a few more angry words, the three robbers climbed into the front seat and started the engine. Due to their inebriated condition, they had overlooked the barn doors, and before the van could be backed from the building, it was necessary for one of the men to get out and fasten them back. In relief, Nancy watched the men go. The moment they were a safe distance from the barn, she scrambled out of the manger. She paused long enough to make certain that the van had taken the road to Garwin. Then, clutching the precious clock in her arms, she turned and ran. As Nancy darted into the woods, she cast an anxious glance over her shoulder. But to her intense relief, she saw that she was not being followed. There was no one to be seen in the vicinity of the roadhouse, and the big moving van was proceeding slowly on its way toward Garwin, the occupants oblivious that their whereabouts had been discovered. I had a narrow escape that time, Nancy told herself as she ran. I hate to think of my fate if I had been discovered. She chuckled softly at her own bravado and clutched the mantel clock more tightly in her arms. Oh, well, it was worth the risk I took. It was dark in the woods, and Nancy could see only a few feet ahead of her. To her chagrin, she discovered that she had left her automobile flashlight somewhere in the barn, probably in the manger. There was no time to go back after it. Confident that her sense of direction was good, she plunged through the bushes toward the place where she had parked her roadster. I'm sure the clock is the right one, she thought. Now, if it only contains Josiah Crowley's notebook. In the timber, there was insufficient light for her to examine the clock. But from the hasty glance she had given it in the barn, she was almost certain it was the timepiece Abigail Rowan had described to her. If the old woman's story was correct, she would find Josiah Crowley's notebook inside. Reaching the roadster and finding it exactly as she had left it, the girl sprang inside. I'll go for the police as fast as I can and send them after the robbers, she decided. The Tophams don't deserve any consideration, but I couldn't be mean enough to sit quietly by and let them lose their household goods. Then, as she was about to start the motor, her glance fell upon the Crowley clock, which she had placed on the seat beside her. She was fairly overcome with curiosity to learn what it would reveal. As she hesitated, she found it impossible to resist the temptation of investigating it immediately.
even at the cost of a few minutes' delay. Impulsively, she opened the glass door and ran her hand around the walls. There was nothing inside. Gone, Nancy groaned. Could it be that the Tophams had discovered the notebook, only to destroy it? Nancy discarded the thought as quickly as it came to mind, for she recalled the conversation she had overheard between Ada and Isabel. No, they were as ignorant as herself concerning the location of the will. It was more likely that Abigail Rowan had been confused in her story. After all, she had not declared that the notebook would be found inside the clock. Nancy had made the deduction herself. I was almost certain I'd find the notebook, she murmured in disappointment. It must be here somewhere. Turning the clock upside down, she gave it a hard shake. Something rattled. Hopefully, she repeated the action. Unquestionably, there was something bulky inside. It must be the notebook, Nancy thought in excitement. Unless I'm wrong, it's behind the face. How can I get it off? After a vain attempt to remove the heavy cardboard face with her fingers, she lifted the automobile seat and found a small tool with which she could pry. It then required but an instant to remove the two hands of the clock and jerk off the face. As the cardboard fell to the floor, Nancy peered hopefully inside and gave a low cry of delight. Eureka! There, at one side of the clock, attached to a hook in the top, dangled a tiny blue notebook. Chapter 21 Capturing the Robbers Eagerly, Nancy Drew tore the little notebook from the hook. The light was dim, but by holding the book directly under the dashlight, she could make out the words on the cover, The Property of Josiah Crowley. I've found it at last, she cried. Quickly turning the first few pages, she saw that they were yellowed with age. The writing was fine and cramped, and the ink had faded. These pages were crowded with business notations, but in the poor light, it was next to impossible to make out the words. Nancy was excited, for she was positive that the notebook would disclose what Josiah Crowley had done with his will. Yet she realized that she could not hope to read through the book without a considerable loss of precious time. If she were to report the whereabouts of the robbers to the police, she must not delay another instant. I'll read the notebook later, she decided. Hurriedly replacing it on the hook inside the clock, she tacked on the face again. Then dropping the timepiece on the seat beside her, she covered it with a blanket. Starting the engine, she skillfully backed the roadster and headed for the main road. Reaching the highway, she cast an anxious glance in the direction the robbers had taken. There was no sign of a light on the road. The moving van had disappeared. I must travel some now, Nancy told herself grimly. Those robbers have at least ten minutes start, and I may have trouble finding the marshal and his deputies. Bending low over the steering wheel, she deliberately stepped hard on the accelerator. The roadster leapt forward, 
as though it too comprehended the need for haste. If those men reach Garwin before the marshal overtakes them, there won't be one chance in a hundred of capturing them, Nancy thought. It was foolish of me to take time to look at the clock. Presently reaching the fork in the road, she selected the right-hand turn, and with undiminished speed rushed on. She had gone several miles beyond the fork, when far ahead she caught sight of an automobile headlight. Nancy promptly reduced the speed of the car. The marshal and his deputies may have given up the search and are coming back, she reasoned. I must be careful not to pass them. As the automobile approached, Nancy slowed her roadster practically to a standstill. Then, as she recognized the police car, she brought her own automobile to a halt. As the marshal and his deputies flashed by, she cried out for them to stop. There was a loud screeching of brakes as the police car came to an abrupt halt. Springing from the roadster, Nancy ran forward. Quick, she called to the marshal. The robbers have taken the road to Garwin. If you hurry, you can overtake them. Go on and I'll follow. Without waiting for more, the marshal and his deputies drove off at top speed. The automobile rounded a bend and was lost to view. For an instant, Nancy Drew stood looking after it. Then, springing into her roadster, she too was off. Following close behind the police car, the girl sped down the road in pursuit of the robbers. The two automobiles passed the roadhouse beyond the fork and raced toward Garwin. We should have overtaken the robbers by this time, Nancy told herself anxiously, after a number of miles had been traversed, and still there was no sign of a moving van. They can't have gone very far. Ten minutes passed. Then, unexpectedly, she caught a glimpse of a red tail light on the road far ahead. It must be the van, Nancy thought. The light doesn't appear to be moving fast enough for an automobile. Evidently, the marshal and his deputies were of the same opinion, for at that moment the police car slowed down. Don't fire unless it's necessary, the marshal ordered his men, but if they resist, pepper them. Cautiously, the police car approached. As the headlight played upon the rear of the van, Nancy saw the license plate clearly and recognized the numbers. Then as the van pulled over to the side of the road, the police car drove alongside. Halt! came the order. The van did not stop. Instead, it put on additional speed and crowded the police car toward the ditch. Nancy's heart was in her mouth as she watched, for it seemed certain that the marshal and his deputies were doomed. At the very edge of the road, the police car, by a sudden spurt of speed, forged ahead and averted disaster. Halt! rang out the warning cry a second time. Halt, or we'll fire! There was a sharp crack of a revolver as the robbers fired the first shot. The marshal and his deputies answered with a quick volley. One of the shots found its mark, the front tire. The van swerved in the road, and as the two side wheels went off into a steep ditch, toppled over. In an instant, the marshal and his men were out of the police car and had covered the three robbers. So 
easily had the van tipped on its side that the men were not injured, but the unexpected jar had thrown them off their guard. Take their guns, the marshal ordered. A deputy relieved the three men of their revolvers and searched their pockets for other dangerous weapons. Another deputy handcuffed them. By this time, Nancy, who had stopped her roadster at the side of the road, reached the scene. As she came running up, the marshal turned to her. Can you identify these men? As a light was flashed upon each of the robbers in turn, Nancy nodded. There is the man who locked me up and left me to starve, she declared, pointing to the leader of the robber band. And the stolen goods are in the van. They'll get ten or twenty years for this, the marshal promised. We'll hold them on several charges. You're willing to testify against them, I suppose? Yes, if it's necessary, Nancy promised reluctantly. But I don't live in this county, and I'm anxious to get home right away. It seems to me you have enough evidence to convict them. Well, if you don't want to, I guess there's no need for you to go back with us, the marshal admitted. I'll take your address, and if your testimony should be required later on, I'll get in touch with you. As Nancy told the marshal her name and address, he glanced at her with new interest. So you're the daughter of Carson Drew. I see you're following in his footsteps. Starting in young, aren't you? Nancy laughed. It was only an accident that took me to the Topham bungalow at the critical moment, she protested modestly. I don't deserve any credit for the roundup. Not many girls would have used their brains the way you did, the marshal observed. Unless I'm mistaken, these robbers are old hands at the game. They've been plying their trade around Moon Lake for a number of seasons. The residents will be mighty grateful for what you've done. And that Mrs. Topham you spoke of? She ought to give you a liberal reward for saving her household goods. Nancy shook her head. I don't want a reward. Just the same you've earned one, the marshal insisted. If you're shy about blowing your own horn, I'll take it up with this Mrs. Topham myself. You don't know her as well as I do, Nancy remarked. She'll not offer a reward, and even if she did, I wouldn't accept it. In fact, I must ask you not to mention my name to her at all. You don't want credit for capturing the robbers? The marshal gasped in astonishment. No, I would prefer that my name not be mentioned in connection with the affair. I have a particular reason for making the request. Well, you're a queer one, the marshal remarked. You're the first person I ever saw who didn't want to take all the glory that was coming to him. You'll not mention my name? No, I'll keep it mum, the marshal promised. And if you're anxious not to figure in the case, I guess we can get along without your testimony. He turned toward the moving van. I'll just have a look inside and see if everything is here. Taking the keys which one of the deputies had turned over to him, the marshal unlocked the rear doors of the van and carelessly glanced inside. It's all here, he announced. Nancy smiled and thought of the clock, which at the moment was hidden under a blanket in her roadster, less than a dozen yards away. Let's be getting away from here, the marshal directed briskly. He singled out one of the deputies. You stay here and guard the stolen goods until we can send another truck after it. I'll see to it that these robbers land behind bars, and then I'll come back. 
Just a minute, Nancy interposed as the marshal was about to escort the three robbers to the police car. I want to ask a few questions. She turned to the leader of the robbers. It was you who stole the keys from Jeff Tucker after getting him drunk, wasn't it? What if I did? the robber growled. I wish I'd finished him. Unceremoniously, the three prisoners were crowded into the police car. One of the deputies took the steering wheel and another stood on the running board, covering the robbers with his revolver. There was no room left for the marshal. Are you going back through town? he asked Nancy. Yes, it's right on my way to River Heights, she responded without a thought. As to the purpose of the question, then if you don't mind, I'll ride back with you. There isn't room in the police car. Why, why, of course, Nancy stammered. At once she thought of the clock, which she had left on the seat of the roadster. What if the marshal should discover it? Even as the thought came to her, the marshal started toward the roadster. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to The Secret of the Old Clock. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.